So hello everybody at futureprimitive.org. I am, um, it's an honor actually for me to be on the phone today with John Seed in Australia. John Seed is the founder and director of the Rainforest Information Center in Australia. Since 1979, he has been involved in direct actions which have resulted in the protection of the Australian rainforests. In 1984, he helped initiate the U.S. Rainforest Action Network, out of which grew his fir the first of his many U.S. roadshows. He has created numerous projects protecting rainforests in South America, Asia, and the Pacific through providing benign and sustainable development projects for their indigenous inhabitants tied to the protection of their forests. He has written and lectured extensively on deep ecology and has been con conducting Council of All Beings and other re-earthing workshops around the world for 25 years. In the U.S., his workshops have been hosted by Esalen, Omega, Naropa, and the California Institute for Integral Studies. He has worked with Joanna Macy, Pat Fleming, and Professor Arnie Neese. And so what I would like to do is jump a little bit and because there's a lot to say about John Seed, but let's say he spent much of 2009 working on the campaign to protect the world's largest remaining populations of Asian elephants and fundraising and monitoring for Rainforest Information Center's small grant program. In 2011, he organized Sydney actions against Borneo timber mafia and worked on Tasmanian forest issues. There is a lot to say about John Seed, but I would rather we came into conversation with him. So I'm going to go directly to your grief, despair, and empowerment workshops, and uh, how you can speak to us about um, how despairing um, climate change can be to many of us and how you feel we need to get in touch with our sadness before we can truly be activists. Um, well, thanks very much, Joanna. Thanks for inviting me onto your program. Um, I... Um in, in, in answer to this question, I've been um, profoundly influenced in my life by uh, uh, my teacher and colleague, Joanna Macy, um, who uh, has been um, one of the people that developed the, this understanding of um, the importance of feeling. That um, I, when I met Joanna in the mid-80s, I'd been working already for a decade for the protection of forests, and although we'd had considerable success, in Australia through direct action in defending rainforests in my home state of New South Wales, the subtropical rainforests in um, Tasmania, the temperate rainforests, and in Queensland, the tropical rainforests. During those same years, for every forest that was protected, uh, a thousand forests disappeared. And it, 
became clear that we had to somehow address the underlying psychological disease that allows us to imagine that we can profit from the destruction of our life support systems. Um, otherwise, these tiny successes would just evaporate. Um, and uh, um, meeting Joanna, I, I, I learned from her the importance of the feelings that are so um, ubiquitously suppressed in our culture, that we live in a culture of denial where we're not um, supposed to feel grief and anguish and horror and rage and terror about what's happening in our world. Uh, or if we do feel these things, we tend to keep it to ourselves, that uh, we're afraid of um, being a wet blanket, of being a party pooper. We're afraid of letting the side down. We're afraid of um, dis distressing other people with our distress. And uh, the problem with this is that these uh, feelings are actually not uh, socially constructed. They're, they're hard, wide in us. They're part of our intelligence that uh, indeed for most of our uh, existence, all of our pre-human existence, these feelings were the entirety of our intelligence that uh, before um, humans started thinking, all of our ancestors uh, made decisions based upon another kind of in intelligence and uh, the success of this intelligence can be um, understood by considering the fact that uh, without exception, every single one of our ancestors was intelligent enough to reach the age of being able to reproduce itself mm -hmm. before it was consumed. So this incredible pedigree of intelligence uh, that uh, precedes us and all of this um, was feelings, or um, we can call it intuition, we can call it instinct, it doesn't matter what we call it, it's the ancestor of what we call feelings. So then in the last, uh, I, I'm not sure, hundreds of thousands of years, thinking has emerged as a very useful adjunct to this earlier intelligence, but now we've tended to think that it's replaced feelings. We've, we, we now behave as if we think that... Um, we can make our way through life and um, entirely based on thinking and that we can somehow uh, leave feelings behind. And the environmental crisis is an indication of the failure of this, uh, of, of this uh, project, that uh, we know what's happening to our world. Everybody knows this now, and yet uh, it doesn't seem to change anything. That um, The problem is that without the passion of our feelings to back up the, the thoughts, um, it doesn't lead to action, it doesn't lead to change, it doesn't lead to change in our behaviour. We feel paralysed, we feel stuck, we feel helpless, we feel hopeless. What can one person do anyway and so on. So what I learned from Joanna Macy was that when we create a safe container to invite these feelings, basically our feelings, uh, a, a place where we can honour the pain that we feel for our world, that when we do this and when we, um, when we challenge the fear that we have of doing this, we're afraid that if, if we were to fully embody the distress that we suspect is there underneath for what's happening to our world, that we would become hopelessly depressed. Maybe we'd commit suicide, something terrible would happen. And what, what we discover is that this is not the case, that in fact, um, honestly 
uh, expressing our own feelings and listening to and welcoming the feelings of uh, our colleagues and our friends uh, leads to empowerment and leads to a tremendous uh, liberation of energy. In fact, all of the energy that has been um, stuck in suppressing these feelings becomes available in a joyous way to uh, engage and to address in um, you know the problems that uh, that face us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I call that despair the Petra Kelly syndrome. Remember? Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I say yeah. I'm having a Petra Kelly day. Petra Kelly uh, being the woman who created the Green Movement in Germany and yeah. uh, and later died. I'm saying this for our, for our listeners. Um, I want to ask you, John, how is it possible for some of us who feel the sadness of what of how we've been exploiting the earth? How is it for us to be able to communicate this to people who don't even know they feel this sadness? Well, um, I, I mean, I think that we really need to start with the people who do know that they feel this sadness. Um, that um, uh, I, I think that uh, the only real change can come from um, building um, a stronger community of people who are already like-minded and like-hearted people and to, to be asking this kind of question in community. That mm-hmm. um, There's an interesting uh, method of uh, regenerating nature which has been developed in Australia called the Bradley Method, mm-hmm. uh, named after two sisters uh, 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 who found that in order to invite the, uh, the original nature of a place that has been denuded or despoiled, mm-hmm. to invite that back, we don't need to plant things, that all that we need to do is to um, allow the um, native vegetation to emerge and to remove the exotics at, at the same time. So that we have to remove the exotics without stepping on the natives and that mm. nature itself will take care of the rest. But the, the, the reason that I mention it in this context is that... Uh, if, if there's an area that we're going to manage like this, our natural instinct is to start in the most damaged part of the area because that's what breaks our heart. But uh, what these sisters found is that if we want to succeed, we have to actually start in the strongest place, the place where, where perhaps a few pioneer species are struggling through by themselves, mm-hmm. and that if we start there, removing the exotics and looking after the natives, then by the time, you know, after a few years... Uh, the, the pioneers will have uh, shot up and some of the climax species will be appearing. And maybe 10 years later, the whole thing will have expanded and reached that badly devastated area, and then it will be able to deal with it. Whereas if we start in the devastated area, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, the, our project will fail. So that those people who are still in denial, I, I, I'm not sure that there's anything that we can do for them right now you know but if we can build a community of concerned people who are prepared to who are prepared to uh acknowledge uh our 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 grief and and our horror at what we see happening around us um then um, that community can grow yes yes that's 
you you speak uh, very beautifully you've written very beautifully about uh, your trip to india in 1995 one of your your several trips to india to lucknow to um, be with uh, papaji and yes. yes and what you what you say is spirit and earth sculpted sculpted your life would you speak about that as it as it expresses itself in you today spirit and earth perhaps uh, perhaps i can begin by talking about one of the uh, projects in india that i've been working on for 20 years now um i i, I think i can only answer this question with um perhaps some examples okay <laughs> and so um in the late uh, 1980s, um, we received an aerogram, which was how people communicated before the internet, uh-huh. um, from a nun uh, who was um, living in uh, an ashram in the town of Tiruvannamalai in South India uh, at the foot of a sacred mountain called Arunachala. And Arunachala, uh, the reason that uh, this mountain is considered sacred is that uh, in Hindu mythology, um, it is said that in the far ancient past when the uh, trinity of gods were meeting, two of the gods, uh, Brahma and Vishnu, uh, remonstrated with the supreme god Shiva and complained that his appearance as a column of light that stretched from infinity to infinity was Mm -hmm. dazzling them beyond endurance. Mm -hmm. And so Shiva, in his compassion uh, for the other gods, agreed uh, to uh, moderate his appearance and thenceforth he became this mountain Arunachala and that's been his only physical form ever since. Mm-hmm. As a result, um, a great uh, uh, pilgrimage takes place all of the time. People from all over India and all over the world converge on this mountain and um, many sages have lived in caves on the mountain through the centuries. Most recently, uh, in the uh, 20th century, uh, Ramana Maharshi, who's well known to spiritual seekers at that time, and perhaps the most important Hindu sage of his of his epoch, um, he lived on that mountain, and it was always his claim that it was the mountain that was enlightened and not he, that people were making a mistake in attributing the enlightenment to him, that it was just the mountain itself where he lived. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Ramana arrived at the mountain in the early 20th century, it was covered in a mighty jungle where even tigers could be met walking along the flanks. But through the uh, uh, ecological devastation that uh, visited much of the world during the 20th century and uh, through uh, uh, deforestation and uh, firewood collection and so on, by the time uh, we received this uh, aerogram in uh, the late 80s, uh, nothing remained on this mountain but thorns and goats. And uh, uh, the, um, the nun who contacted us, Apisa Arunagiri, uh, asked whether we could help in uh, revegetating the mountain. And uh, so uh, we were able to uh, uh, get some grants from the Australian Government Aid Agency to begin this project. And uh, we titled the project reweaving Shiva's robes, that we uh, uh, framed the project 
not so much as an ecological restoration project, but that this is how uh, one might uh, worship Shiva in the modern age, that uh, if Shiva had wanted to appear as a denuded, barren, muddy piece of rock, he could easily have done so, but he, he appeared as a mighty jungle and that uh, it's a spiritual task to allow, uh, to invite his uh, magnificence to return. And so for 20 years we've been um, working with local people on the reforestation of this mountain. And uh, in recent years, uh, the non-government organisation that we set up in 1991, the Anamalai Reforestation Society, has slowly been joined by other NGOs. Now there's more than a dozen NGOs working on the mountain doing similar work. So that now some of the first trees that we planted are 20 metres in the air and casting shade, but uh, also the idea that, um, that that the line that we draw between ecology and spirituality is an artefact, is constructed, that in reality there is no such line, that the earth itself is sacred, that uh, this idea is also taking root. And um, so in, in terms of any long-term change, uh, this is even more important than the trees. So, as you say, nature out there and nature in here. So, could you give us some? Um, could you give us some ideas about practicing sacredness with the earth in a in a practical way? Well, I suppose that just recognizing that um, that the earth is sacred um, it certainly helps to spend time in wild nature and um, so to um, leave behind the uh, socially constructed world which is so hypnotic and so uh, um, permeates everything and, mm -hmm. and spend some time um, alone, especially in wild nature, is, uh, is a, a really important way of, of, of remaining, um, you know, aware of the, of the sacredness of nature. And uh, I also find for people like myself who spend most of their time in cities and a lot of that time working on computers and things that have seemed very far from nature, although, of course, all of the material in the computers comes from nature, as does everything, Mm -hmm. um, that um, there are certain practices uh, which we call uh, experiential deep ecology practices which uh, allow us to, even in the city to um, have the experience of our interconnectedness with the earth and uh, the continuity that, that of, of, of nature, that, that the actual experience that the nature out here and the nature... The nature out there and the nature in here are one and the same, are continuous, that we humans are not separate from the earth, that we are a plain member of the biota. And so um, I facilitate uh, a lot of um, experiential deep ecology workshops, uh, have done so all over the world for the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And in facilitating them, uh, I uh, participate, of course, as well, at the facilitator of these workshops after setting the scene becomes just a participant in the circle. And uh, these workshops are um, synchronous with the ceremonies and rituals that all 
indigenous communities, as far as I've been able to uh, discover, practiced to ensure that the uh, spiritual connection between human beings and the rest of the Earth family uh, should not wither. That uh, in my studies, I've been unable to find a single example of um, an indigenous community that still maintains its uh, traditional ceremonies. I've been unable to find a single example of one that doesn't have uh, ceremonies whereby the human family can acknowledge and honour and worship the rest of the Earth family, acknowledging all our relations and thereby maintaining those relationships. It's only we moderns that have uh, wandered off into this incredible sense of self-importance where we are the only uh, important thing. Uh, the world consists of human beings on the one hand and resources for human beings on the other hand. Only man was made in God's image. Only yes. human beings have a soul and so on and so on. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, and thereby the sacredness of the earth becomes invisible to us. John Seed, would you speak to us about um, your feelings about the um, the latest earth changes, the from the earthquake at Fukushima to uh, the recent volcano eruption in Indonesia? Well, um, I mean, some people believe that uh, human impact is actually, you know, the, the decreasing weight of glaciers due to climate change and, uh, and other things uh, that can be attributed to human beings may be responsible even for um, intensification of, uh, you know, tsunamis and volcanic mm -hmm. activity and so on. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know whether, you know, I, I don't necessarily believe that, but I do know that the Earth is uh, not, um, it's not a peaceful place. It's not a gentle place. Of course, it's not only a gentle place. That uh, what, we're, what we're experiencing at the moment appears to be a mass extinction, but it's not the first time that there's been a mass extinction. There have already been uh, five previous mass extinctions in the history of uh, life on Earth. And uh, one of those at the end of the Permian era, 232 million years ago, as a result of forces that are controversial, some believe it was volcanoes and volcanism and others think it was... Uh, at the end of the Permian era, 95% um, of all of the species on Earth uh, disappeared uh, in, in some kind of uh, uh, calamity and that um, the 3% created forth in dazzling creativity created the... Uh, age that, you know, uh, love and worship. So that um, great tragedies aren't anything. Yeah, that, 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 that's, uh, that it's, it's not just that, uh, you know, um, life is so uh, uh, vibrant and uh, um, diverse in spite of these extinctions, but precisely because of them, that if it hadn't been for the... Uh, uh, that uh, killed half of the species uh, 65 million years ago, including the dinosaurs and uh, all of their kin, that, um, you know, the, the present epoch would never have emerged. So, um, from the human point of view, um, 
there's a great tragedy taking place, but as far as nature is concerned, this is pretty well how it's been every step of the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a burning question for you. Do you think that uh, Gaia feels pain, that Gaia feels pain from what we have been doing? Um, of course, I, I have no way of knowing whether Gaia feels or what Gaia feels, but uh, I, I would say that um, what we have been doing is just as natural meteor that um, smashed into the Earth 65 million years ago, uh, creating um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the demise of the, of, of the epoch that merging of the, the Cenozoic era. So uh, um, this seems to be the idea that we human beings are somehow, um, that there's something I, w I, I can't see any ground. And possibly, uh, uh, you know, it, possibly this is a painful experience for Guy to go through these kind of huge extinction events. Um, I, I, I have no way of knowing that, but um, certainly uh, this isn't the first time that it's happened. And uh, this is the first time, of course, that human beings have been involved. But uh, um, human beings are just as natural as meteors. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, uh, John Seed, what um, if, if, uh, what are you doing now? What are you thinking about, and what are you doing at this time? Well, uh, I'm um, facilitating a lot of climate change, despair, and empowerment workshops, which we spoke about previously. I, I, I do feel that um, um, it would be um, that the only way that we're going to be able to uh, come up with the political will to um, resolve the huge uh, challenges that face us uh, with respect to uh, climate change and, you know, loss of biodiversity and, uh, and, and the rest of it is to have a huge um, movement of uh, citizens that uh, uh, I, I don't think governments are going to do anything uh, significant. I don't think industry is going to do anything unless the people demand it. And we've seen in... Um, in Egypt and other places that uh, people can come out of nowhere demanding, uh, you know, demanding justice, demanding democracy and so on. So I feel uh, um, that um, to uh, empower the environment movement and to, and to help the environment movement to, um, to grow, um, that's, um, w without that, I can't see how anything, how the necessary changes are going to take place. So I'm, I'm focusing uh, largely on on um, facilitating these workshops, um, in, you know, with that uh, with that motivation, and uh, I'm continuing to work on um, conservation projects around the world uh, in Australia, uh, working uh, for the Tasmanian forests um, in India, um, working on that, continuing to work on that rip project and um, uh, I'm also at this time uh, looking after my mother who's uh, age 91 and so I've moved um, I used to live in I spent the last 35 years living very close to the rainforest but now I've moved to Sydney and uh, um, so uh, paying a bit more attention to uh, my personal life yes and uh, uh, reading you uh 
I can tell that looking after your mother is looking after the earth, your mother. Well, uh, uh, yes. I mean, that um, this this was certainly how how the earth feel. Uh, um, to my delight, I feel a, a very strong calling to uh, pay attention to the personal after having uh, been, you know, just out there in the world for decades to, to be coming home is, uh, is a really good feeling. I, I wanted to say that you quote Carlos Castaneda and uh, this quote from him, only if one loves this earth with unbending passion can one release one's sadness. Would you like to just meditate for a moment and uh, perhaps close with telling us what that evokes in you? Hmm. Well, it's it's uh, such a beautiful uh, statement that um, I'm I'm not I'm not quite sure how to uh, how to do that. But uh, what one of the things that I found is that by um, uh, and the sadness that uh, naturally comes to anybody who loves the earth and who acknowledges what's happening to the earth, um, that poetry and music is just a very beautiful way to express that. And so uh, I'm wondering if I could um, uh, close with um, a poem um, of, uh, uh, that I think, you know, um, speaks, to, speaks to this question. Beautiful. So so um, the reason I'm taking over here with my voice is that I was on the phone with John Seed in Australia and um, the line um, got sort of scratchy and, uh, and just not good enough for people to be able to hear him clearly. So I asked him what he would like to uh, say in closing and uh, he began to recite this beautiful poem. So uh, I'm going to say it for him and with him. It's called Word to the Mother by Drew Dellinger. I once was blind, but now I see, I understand that the planet is the source of me. Literally, just like a mom gives birth to a babe, Mother Earth's given birth to everything that's been made. Word for the mother, source of every other thing, every being in the ring of creation, and every individual's a manifestation of that grace innate in this place, space and time, expressing the blessing, caressing my mind. Holy osmosis, that's what the cosmos is. Boom, universe, earth, human from the beginning, the spinning universe possessed a spiritual interior inside the manifest, blessed with a blast from the past, free at last as the big bang rang, sprang, sang from the start through the void like a joy from the land of the dark and the lights, the birthright of us all. You and I are all the fireball. A higher call inspires us all with a sense of place, 
Let us find the divine mind behind every face. I've just began to recognize the whole soul force. Word to the mother, word to the source. We've got to get back to the mother. We've got to get back to the earth. We've got to get back to the mother. We've got to get back to the earth. Word to the mother. So how dare we have the nerve to disturb the planetary source, the very force that brought us alive? If she ain't in effect, there ain't no way to survive. How can we see no wisdom from the ecosystem, this industrialized phase, crazed to pave highways, yikes, 50,000 toxic sites, nuclear power plants, constructed with haste, without any clue what to do with the waste, radiation, seeping deep in the nation, losing patience with corporations and abusers, grinning like they're winning when we're all to be losers. They ignore natural forces, deplete our resources, no remorse, we're off course, hold your horses. Mother, may I try to say why my society lost sight of the whole. As we try and we try till we die to control the earth dream that can never be tamed, that can never be sold, and that can never be named. What a shame. And it is lame. Is what, what is lame is what we thought was clever to dam every river ever never never land is at hand until we see and rediscover there ain't no other it's absurd to have to say it a word to the mother We've got to get back to the mother. We've got to get back to the earth. We've got to get back to the mother. We've got to get back to the earth. The story of the mother, as I reminisce, is enough to make this brother eco-feminist. How can we limit this limitless exponential growth potential Economy is secondary. Earth is essential. The mother exists in every wave on the sea, in every bird in the sky, and every leaf on the tree. Community, unity, you and me, family, all of us, children born from four billion years of blood, sweat, and tears of the earth. We need to let her be, let her go, set her free, let her fly, let her flow, let her grow and unfold the way the mother intended. Activities that damage the earth must be suspended. Listen, because we're missing what the mother's advice is. She'll help us deal with ecological crisis. She's mightier than Aphrodite or Isis and twice as creative illustrated of the point. When the earth gives birth to the now, still we try to milk 
every sacred cow. We need to chill until we see that no creature is my enemy. They're all kin to me. Earth is the remedy for the melody. She's the truth at the root of reality. The elements of my bones are left over from the swirling stardust of a supernova made by the earth and the breath of the one reigns in the veins and in the flames of the suns. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marian Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.